2: Din værd, Lise Bak Hansen. Det handler ikke om at beskrive de skrækscenarier, der måske venter os. Det handler om at beskrive den skønhed, vi står til at miste. Det udtalte Mene Grosing, en af verdens førende geologer, da han medvirkede i talkserien Arctic Imagination i Canada. Han taler om det aktivistiske kunstværk Ice Watch, som han var med til at sætte op til klimatopmødet i Paris i 2015. Man placerede 100 tons indlandsis fra Grønland midt i Paris, så alle kunne se det smelte, mens beslutningerne om planetens fremtid blev truffet. Talken er en del af Arctic Imagination, en serie af talks på tværs af Atlanten fra Danmark til Canada, der kaster lys på transformationen, udviklingen og krisen i Arktis. Som et stærkt symbol, et mytologisk inspirerende landskab og en geopolitisk faktor. Som en videnskabsmand kan du hjælpe folk med at flytte sig eller gøre noget, hvis de vil, fortæller Mini Grusing. Men hvordan får du dem til at ville det? Kunst er noget, der bevæger folk. Det kan få dem til at ville det. Talken du kan glæde dig til at høre nu, var en samtale med den kanadiske fotograf Edward Butinsky om klimakrisen. Hvilken skala vi skal forstå problemerne og løsningerne på. Og hvorfor der stadig er grund til at være håbefuld.
1: fug let's start with you because I'd love to hear about um the exhibition that you did, uh Icewatch and and the reaction that you had from people when you put these giant blocks of ice in places like London and Paris and Copenhagen. What, what was the point of it?
0: Well, the point of it was uh, actually manifold. I think one of them was, uh, as here now we're, we're talking about the fascination with the Arctic, so that is the iceberg is kind of an emblemic uh, thing for, for, the, for the Arctic region. Ice and coldness is what defines the Arctic. So that was part of it, but of course it was also to raise awareness of uh, climate change. And when we did it the first time, that was before the COP15 meeting in Copenhagen, where it was planned that the Paris Agreement should have been the Copenhagen Agreement. And, uh, and, uh, and the, um, the IPCC, the, 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 the scientific uh, panel, on the climate change we're meeting in Copenhagen. And that was at a time when it was actually still controversial. I guess you can still find corners here and there where it is controversial that climate change is real and it is uh, caused by by human activity. But at that time, it was actually something that was still controversial. And we thought that we would bring attention to the fact that the Scientific Council for this was in Copenhagen, but also, uh, again, uh, make people realize that this is, is real. And the idea, it was uh, Olafur Eliasson, a Danish Icelandic artist, and and myself who did it. And I think one of the ideas uh, that is behind that is that, uh, you know, as a scientist, you can help uh, people get somewhere or do something. If they want to do that to go there, but scientists can never make people want to do anything. Scientists can make people, you know, sit and fall asleep or whatever. But but there is not kind of the thing that makes people want to do stuff. But art is something that moves people, and they would want to do something. So uh, instead of uh, lecturing everybody, this is so and so difficult and this is dangerous and now listen and so many tons of CO2 and whatever, we just bring these icebergs that are beautiful, known right, and let them melt and let the the, the message uh, seep in from that. So we did that for Copenhagen in, uh, at the pre-COP-15 meeting. Then we did it again in Paris for the, uh, the uh, COP21, and it seemed to work the second time because we got a Paris agreement, uh, uh, only due to our installation, of course. Um, so. Um, but, but, but I think one of the things that is, that is important uh, in this is that it's not uh, to tell about the horrors of what might happen, it is to tell about the beauty that we stand to, to lose. I think that is a much better aspiration for doing something, that we have something beautiful that we can't afford to lose, than the fear of, of the consequences of something that, that might or might not happen. So that was it, and it was when we installed it in Paris, it was very, very funny because... Um, uh, Paris is a very bureaucratic city. Bureaucracy is a French word, as you know, and uh, it was very difficult to get everything. But we managed actually to be allowed to put these and have it be a secret until they were there. So we put them in the middle of the night, big trucks came in, and we placed these. Uh, there were 100 tons of ice uh, that we put uh, on the um, uh, Place de la pension um, um, uh, in Paris. Uh, and we saw a lone bicyclist, after we were finished, come up the hill on his bicycle. And he's just, what is this? And he stopped kind of in his motion and put his feet down and the bicycle fell between his feet. And he went over and then he took his hand out. Yes, they are cold. This is real ice. And I think that was one of the messages is that ice, actually, we can read about, we know that ice is cold, but we never knew that actually, until we touch it, what that means that it's cold. Then if you stand next to an iceberg, it turns out to be a living creature. It has a breath, you know, it's, it's exhaling air as it was before we started polluting it 10,000 years ago, because it's caught in little ice bubbles, it makes noises, cracks, water trickles, little kids can come and drink the water trickling off the iceberg. So it was, so I think, um, the mission was accomplished when we saw that people were actually more intrigued by the, by the beauty than by the horror. And if we get time later, because I think you would want to say one or two things as well. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, no, I'm
3: enjoying this. Yeah, I know. Okay. I know. I, I,
0: but but, but, uh, but actually, the, 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 it's quite interesting, because it also sparked some questions. Like when we were there, people would come and ask questions and do various things. And that was an opportunity to explain what the background between all this was as well. But we can take that at a later point.
1: Well, I, I would love to hear your perspective on that, because um, that point about. Um, appreciating the beauty and using that as a way to spark change rather than scaring people. Because some of your photos, albeit beautiful, are terrifying.
3: And, and it's interesting you say terrifying because, uh, you know, if I look at what I've done over the 40 years, and it is, that's really when I started 1981, I kind of shifted from photographing the landscape to photographing the man-altered landscape. And, and I fell in love with that A pristine landscape first um, as a child just being in forests and all of that really embedded itself as a way to kind of reference what nature intended on the planet and it's out of that reference point that I thought well if I spent a whole career just photographing that in a way it felt out of sync with my time And and so what I started to think about is that man altered landscape if I went and searched out the largest examples and I was kind of as a youth I was a, I saw my father working in a carf plant and the making of engines i saw I worked in a frame plant building you know truck frames i I, I went and, and, and worked as a in a mine in Red Lake in northern Ontario. I saw big open pit mines when I was nineteen saw the big trucks with the big tires and I want you know people don 't know this world and I think out of the beginning of the work is to just kind of reconnect us to those other worlds, like those other ages, the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Copper Age, they're all alive and well at a scale that is, you know, breathtaking. And it was really, I think, out of, the, out of a sense of awe at the beginning that I was actually going there to photograph it and to kind of show people, like, this is a crazy world that we're creating to make the world we live in. So, in a way, the kind of disaster uh, landscape or terrifying landscape is... It's it's kind of interesting because these are all intentional landscapes. These are all business as usual. You know, these are you know companies that have gotten permits to do it, licenses to do it. They're you know they're hiring people. They're pay, they're paying their taxes. It's you know it, it's it's creating an economy. So this isn't something that you know is happening outside of, of, of our what normal is, but it is an extension of our habitat. You know, we can't have this place without creating those disruptions disruptions in nature. So that that really has been the thesis of my work, and and so when somebody says this is a disaster landscape, I'm saying, well, if, if that's a disaster landscape, so is your everything in your life. Right. Your house, your car, getting on a plane, all of that is, you know, these are equivalents. This is the yin to the yang that I'm photographing, but we never get out to the yin. So, you know, so that that to me has been this kind of being the, the, the medium through and using photography as a conduit. Uh, to our urban consciousness that there is another world that is equally part of our world, but we don't see it. And then I chose to f- photograph it in a way that references a lot of art historical moments, abstract ex- expressionism, you know, even 19th century photography. Sometimes I'd reference that, this kind of pure re- response to a landscape that's kind of clean. And, and so I, I use different modalities of looking to try and translate that in a way that makes the viewer a little destabilized because it's like wow this is pretty surreal looking where is this or look at the scale of that and and to destabilize somebody with a photograph today is very hard to do we are so image conscious and we're all working with images i think i, I re- read at some point that you know we you know look at 10,000 images a day if you look at all the billboards and phones and you know, magazines and everywhere images pop up, we're surrounded by them. So, in that world of saturation, I'm also looking at a moment where you stand in front of an image and you go, where is this and how could this image be of our world? And so these kind of alien kind of feeling landscapes are really, you know, our world, but they do feel like they're of another world.
1: Let's talk about the Arctic, because um, we're in the green room, and th- these two have never met in person before, but they became fast friends in about 2.5 seconds, because they started comparing pictures of fish that they have caught, and um, Ed showed in this. In the Arctic. In the Arctic, and because Ed has done a bucket list trip to uh, to Nunavut and went fishing, and there's this beautiful picture of him in this Arctic char, and, and Monique said, well, that's not, f- that's not fair, so there was a lot of disbelief, and um, but when it comes to the Arctic and the theme of, of this conversation, the implications of a warming Arctic, um, what keeps you up, which you've said at, at night, is the state of the oceans. Talk to us about that.
3: Well, that, I actually do say that when people say, What am I most worried about? I'm thinking, Well, you know, wh- there may be ways in which we can course correct uh, when it comes to CO2. We may find ways to. <clears throat> Um, sequester some of it and through technologies we may find some kind of geotechnical ways in which you know I've heard of satellite kites up between the you know the sun and the earth and to to, to pretty much put up an umbrella and shade us if it's really getting to a point where we're losing control there are kind of there's some things that are within the plausible sulfites also is another one for for cooling the planet which is which was learned through you know, when big volcanoes hit the temperature, global temperature drops by a couple of degrees because of all the sulfites in the stratosphere. So the, I don't think it's a good idea, that one, but kites may be more benign. Uh, but there are things that there could be a conversation about that we might be able to kind of course correct if we can't slow down the CO2 emissions quick enough to stop the worst from happening. But when I think about the oceans, there, I can't think of anything in our toolkit. If they start warming and they start getting acidified, um, I don't think there's anything in our toolkit that can reverse that because that's going to just take tens of thousands of years to to cool back down to its you know normal status. So it is the oceans that I think um, you know. So I remember I listening to a TED talk and this, uh, the speaker got I can't remember their name they got up and they said we named Earth wrong. We should have called it Ocean. It's two thirds surface water and one third land. And so we are a planet that's determined and our climate. The, you know, the rains that come on us, all of that are all driven by the ocean currents and by the waves and, the, and, the, and, and by the air that's formations of, of the oceans. And um, so when, they, when something happens to them, we go for that ride. I don't think there's anything we can do.
1: Monique, you said during a conversation we had the other day that you um, thought that the Arctic might not exist by the end of the century.
0: Well, I, I think that the Arctic is many things and can be defined in different ways. But the classical uh, kind of geographical explanation or definition of the Arctic is where the summer temperature is below 10 degrees C. Uh, so, And that's basically north of the tree line, where you go from the forest to the tundra. That is the definition of the Arctic. And by that uh, traditional uh, uh, definition, at the rate things are going because you probably have heard of what's called the arctic amplification that means that the general uh, temperature increase for the planet on average is uh, multiplied by about four to six in the arctic so that means that a one and a half degree uh, temperature uh, increase uh, for the average of earth would be six to eight to ten degrees uh, uh, and that clearly will basically wipe arctic off the planet Uh, by its its current definition. So we are looking into a future where the Arctic doesn't exist uh, by the end of this century. Luckily, uh, people who go to uh, stuff like this are in general so old that it doesn't matter too much. Uh, But uh, if you look into the next generation, it does matter. And I I think that that, that's that's, that's the sad news. And I think that there's something interesting in the way that oftentimes we talk about the Arctic in relation to climate is in the, in the context of the canary in the mine is kind of, we look to the Arctic and say, whoa, there's something terrible going on. We better start acting differently. As though the Arctic didn't exist in its own right. And the Arctic is also home to, to people, to populations, to cultures. And uh, and there is, uh, as, as, as some people would say, it's a human right to be cold. I mean, for some people, it's actually, it's a necessity to be cold. And uh, and, uh, in that sense, I think we should stop looking at the Arctic as a symptom, but also looking at the loss of the Arctic as a a problem in its own right. But I think we should maybe even more importantly, not look at the Arctic as a problem at all, but we should look at it as an opportunity. I, I think that that's, I think it's much more fun to be people in the Arctic if the Arctic is part of the solution to our problems, and the Arctic can be part of the solutions. And as Ed was just talking about the oceans, it's true that the oceans are, in many ways, you can say the oceans are where we see long-lasting uh, uh, changes that will be difficult to, to reverse. But on the other hand, the ocean also what saved us and also now from much worse consequences because it's a big reservoir of cold but also it's a reservoir of carbon dioxide. It has a capacity to take up carbon dioxide. So anyway, so uh, the Arctic uh, could actually be a place where we, we have uh, an opportunity to try to counter some of these problems in the Arctic, particularly acidification. So, so I think that that we should try not looking at the Arctic either as a symptom or as a victim, but as a as an agent. I think that Arctic needs needs agency.
1: Can I ask you how? I mean, when you say that, that it can be part of our solutions, how? Well,
0: of course, uh, uh, global problems can only be solved by simple means. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, if something is very sophisticated, you cannot roll it out on on, on a on a. On a on a global scale, no. But I think that that we understand the Earth system well enough. We actually understood how the climate is coupled to biology and to geology and everything else. We understood that for a hundred years or so. And one of the things we know is that it's, it's, it is it is it uh, is controlled by nutrient uh, fluxes uh, the, and the reason why the um, why uh, almost all the, the the reason why people from the other parts of the world have been going to the arctic whaling and fishing and whatever for a thousand years is because the ocean around the arctic has enormous productivity and the reason why it has enormous productivity is because mineral nutrients are being leaked into the ocean from the land mainly around greenland where you have the ice cap and that's because the ice cap is a big grinder grinding machine that crushes the minerals into something that is basically soluble in water and sets out with the milk water. So the rivers where we catch our Arctic chars, not those big, ugly ones that you go for, but normal sized <laughs> Arctic chars. Uh, uh, he, he only goes for the obscene ones, but we we like we like you know n- nice nice normal Arctic jars they they but they live in these milk water rivers that look like milk basically, and thats uh, and that is the, this material is uh, is what actually counters the acidification of the ocean and also can increase the uh, capacity of the ocean to take up carbon dioxide. But as it is now, it stays in the Arctic, it goes out and dumps out in the fjord and makes uh, you know walking and sailing and everything else difficult. But if you take it from the Arctic to the tropics or to other parts of the you know, more temperate part of the world, it will be activated and it will go into these natural cycles. So I think it's really important that we understand that the scale of things, are uh, something that is scalable, and that is something that is scalable. The Greenland ice cap makes a billion tons of this material every year. That's more than anyone can move in any place. So I think you have to think of the world of the Earth basically a little bit like uh, any other engine that if you, if you have an electrical engine, you need two poles to make it run. And the more differences between the two poles, the better it runs. So if you, take, if you connect the Arctic to the tropics, you have a large potential gradient and you can make a lot of work done. If you take two things in the Arctic, you have very little potential to gradient, and the machine goes very slowly. So anyway, I think that this is just one example, but we can find many examples where the Arctic can, can help um, um, mitigate uh, the problems that we have made for ourselves. And we have to start thinking about that.
1: Would you like a chance to rebuttal about the Arctic
3: chart? <laughs> <laughs> we did get some smaller ones, too. Oh. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, no. It's it's just interesting what you're saying, and uh, the the, uh, but the thing in 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 fact of what I've been photographing, and whether it's you know oil fields, or looking at the energy footprint of of China, and and looking and going into you know developing worlds like India, where you know these coal stations are being still being built, and and uh, e- even if looking at the. You know most recent problems with you know gas and oil coming from Russia and the embargoes and all that now everybody's spiking up their you know their research and all that so and even with the melting in the Arctic as it's melting it's making more gas fields open to so so all of that is that you know in that having Arctic have its agency but but in 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 the kind of reality that I've seen is that you know the the human kind of experiment of 8 billion of us moving to 10 and the kind of energy based energy footprint that it takes the but what worries me is uh you know even with the full knowledge of what's happening you know is is there anything in the human toolkit that can bring us together politically and you know uh, you know through engineering and scientifically to decide on you know how are we going to make this Transition. And I think transition is the key word at this point, in, away from the damaging, uh, you know, CO two emissions to a more sustainable uh, world. And 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 can we get there fast enough? And so I think th- those are the the things that also keep me up. Is that having seen and, and stared China and India and these large populations, and recently, more recently, Africa, and looking at what's happening there and their desire to a- achieve. The kind of lifestyle and, and, and opportunity that we have is the the you know the, the, the problem that I see is a very very bitchy one to fix yeah.
0: no I, I totally agree, and I think also you said in uh, earlier you said that that uh, all these scars we see in the landscape are some way in a reflection of ourselves, and I think that that 's one of the of the big uh, big problems in when we talk about climate change is as we have acquired some guilt for having caused this for no particular reason, but it was not for no particular reason, it was for a very good reason. Our life has been, everything in our life that we value comes from the access to cheap fossil energy, basically, or it would have come from, from, from renewable energy had we known how to do it, but, but not at the time. So I, I think that, that uh, it, so there's also kind of this. A culture war going on. Where where should we place the blame for this, and who did what? And and in the Arctic, we oftentimes also talk about it as though it's something that somebody did to us. But you know, per capita, people in the Arctic are some of the highest emitters in the world. Only there are so few of us that that it doesn't really doesn't really add up to anything. But so, but but the reason why I think the main part of it, and that's come back to what you just said, are sociological. It's because the benefits of what we get from the cheap energy are so immense. That today, every human person, not in, in our part of the world, but in the whole world, every hu- human person has 20 manpower, human power uh, to dispose of. So we have from the energy we get. So everybody of us, have. we, we only do one twentieth of our needs ourselves. And so we can lie on the couch and something, the dishwasher is doing the dishes, and, and it's, it's wonderful. And I think we have, I think to have, before we can get a change, we have to embrace the fact that it's actually wonderful to have this energy. That's why the renewable energy now being cheaper and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and in many ways more convenient than the traditional is the best thing that have happened. The, the, the bad thing is that scaling it up takes time and it takes resources that are difficult to, to, to find.
1: forgive the simplicity of this question, but if you say that we could lose the Arctic by the end of the century, what is this Earth without the Arctic?
0: It's a very different place, and there's uh, something that uh, seems to tell us that we are already uh, standing on this, maybe past the threshold, into a different world that we don't know and we cannot predict. And I think uh, one of the you say I live in California, what, we would, what people in California say scares living daylight out of me, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, Vancouver 2021. So, if you look at Vancouver through the past fifty years summer temperature winter temperatures have been going in an absolute predictable up and down every every year as long as everybody has known and uh, the maximum summer temperature has been within a uh, you no know, little bell curve distribution around a mean that has very very little variation and then bang twenty twenty one it goes up to four. Uh, sigma's out from the, from the, which means basically is an event that is not supposed to happen except every ten thousand years, and now it seems to have happened twice, and I think that is uh, that is that is something that really scares me because that tells that we don't have a climate that is predictable anymore. And that keys directly back to the laws of the Arctic, because what made the Arctic the Arctic is that you have some circum- part of what is, is, is circumpolar wind systems that kept the cold in the Arctic where it belongs and kept the, the, the climate at, at the other side of that, that system. And that has got completely out of whack and is going back and forth. That causes these very cold winters in northern China and uh, eastern uh, central North America but also, of course, these complete out-of-scale temperature excursions in, 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 in the north northern hemisphere. So, so I think that uh, that is one of the consequences. So it's not only that if you go to the Arctic, it will look, look differently. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay there. It goes everywhere. And, of course, it will change the climate belts. It will change, change the, um, the, when you have water for growing your crops and when you don't and all these things. So. So the world without the Arctic is not a fun place. Or it could be a fun place, we don't know, but it, there's all likelihood that it isn't. And I think there's in, in, when we talk about climate, we always talk about as though there's good and bad climate. There's no good and there's no bad climate, but there's climate that we are adapted to. And if the climate changes from what we are adapted to, then suddenly all our investments in adaptation are gone, and then we have to you know, have, use great effort to adapt to something else. So it's not that climate is better or. or or, or, or good, but it's different, and that's the problem.
1: Just out of curiosity, um, for the audience who's here—not on the live stream—but hands up, who's been to the Arctic before? Ed, does that surprise you? That number well, of people?
3: Over half the room, which yeah, is great. Half I mean, the room. I, I actually think that, if <laughs> to, as a Canadian, you know, we are a northern you know, uh, you know, country that, that if you've, ne- if you've only stayed at the 49th parallel where 85% of, you know, Canadians are within a hundred kilometers of the 49th parallel of the American border. Uh, but most of our country is North, you know, if you start looking at it. And, and even when I, I was up in Nunavut on the, on, on the coast of the Arctic Arctic ocean. And then I looked at the map and I was like halfway up. You know that's i 'm thinking wow that's that you know the, when you start looking at how vast that territory is, and also the thing that I, I found you know and I was just there about a month ago, and we were and we were looking at places where you know the sides of the river you know were were the the mud was falling, and it was very much the same kind of chalky water you know, the, the, you know but but we can see ice, we can see the permafrost and 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 when you pick up that permafrost and you know, I took a picked up a chunk of it and and it's almost like cow dung. It's, it's like it's all like material, and it's all the lichen and all that from thousands of years ago, and it's all built up. And that permafrost is deep. It goes quite a ways down. And that's the other one that's, the, and, and, and we are like one-third. And, and if you look at you know, Russia and Siberia, it's two-thirds of the boreal forest, but it has a greater, uh, 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 vaster terrain of tundra. And, and when you, you know, walk on tundra, it's like you're walking on these hexagons. I remember I was walking on it, and if, and if you step off of one of the tops, and I, at one point I had my foot go down four feet, and that's just all because the freeze-thaw cycle on top of that ice is created. Like when you see mud you know, and dry mud, you'll see all the patterns around the drying, and, and that's basically what's happening, but you've got lichen on top of it, which is soft, and you're walking it. But the whole thought of all of that starting to melt is the, I think it's referred to as positive feedback loops, uh, and and then also if you don't have the white snow to reflect, you've got these other loops that are going to accelerate the the um, you know the warming, and and if and if of, of course there's massive amounts of methane caught up in all of that lichen, and if it's starting to melt, then you've got methane coming out, which is isn't as persistent in the atmosphere but it's 32 times worse than CO2 in the atmosphere. So again this kind of positive feedback loop on that scale is also I think a daunting thing and again nothing I don't think in the human toolkit you know short of some way of cooling the actual all of the earth whether you know through some geotechnical response, uh, you know, technical, you technical know, way in which we may be able to fo- solve that problem if we can't get CO2 out quick enough, then that's another, and it would be interesting to hear what, what your thoughts on the permafrost is.
0: Well, I, I, I share your your, uh, your your concern. Of course, I think uh, the uh, the degradation of, the, of of all this organic material in the permafrost is that another ticking bomb. I think one of the things that that uh, in in general is, is I think it's one of the smaller contributions though, to, to still to to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, even if it starts to to accelerate. Uh, so uh, uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about it, but but I I think the um, the, the one of the things that that is in the climate system is that it's out of equilibrium, that means that the atmosphere and everything else is such that even if we stopped emitting now or got to stabilize now, it will still keep changing for the next 100, 200 years or so because we are still living on a lot of borrowed uh, money, so to speak, the coldness of the ocean, the capacity of the system to take up CO2 and so forth. So, so I, I think that, that that forms just one part of that, uh, of, of, of the, of that, that thing. I think, on the other hand, it's important not to be so daunted that we kind of say, well, nothing will help anyway, so why why do anything? And I I think, actually, we we can do something. I think it's, it's really important in all of this is that to remember that it has taken us about 200 years, maybe 150 years uh, 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 to call, cause all this havoc in a very, very small very, very small trace gas in the atmosphere. There's extremely little, we talk about 300 to 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide, that is the problem that is in extremely small amount. In the atmosphere, we talk about the the, the skies being high and whatever, but they aren't. The, the top of the troposphere is 12 kilometers above our head. You could take that distance on a bicycle in half an hour, you know, it, it, the atmosphere is a small compartment, and uh, so it doesn't. It, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it doesn't mean that it's not impossible that we can change some of these things, and we. So what's, what it gives me, is, um, if not comfort, at least some hope is that, that we have been able to cause this enormous change in such a short period of time with relative simple means. Uh, and that means that if we have the will, we can do something to reverse this and or to stabilize it. So I think it's really important that we remember that this, the strength that caused this is also the strength that allows us to mitigate it and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and remember that that our future is not—it's not a destiny. I think. I mean, uh, I think uh, Canadians are known for for being halfway Calvinists, and and we all uh, and Danes are too, and and, 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 and somehow we, we think that that um, that you know we did something, and now we have to suffer its consequences, and that's only that's only fair enough. Uh, of course, I think it's more fun to do stuff and then not don't suffer the consequences. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so I, I think that that that's what basically what our what our what our knowledge has given us is the uh, opportunity to not 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 uh, not, uh, not face the consequences. So, so again, so I think that we said we have to get out of this this uh, line of thought that this is a, a destiny. The future is a consequence. It, it is a result of decisions we make. Today. And if we follow our decisions, the future will be different from if we just t- take it as a, as a destiny. I'm
3: absolutely confident with that.
1: You're a geologist, you're a photographer. Are you both activists?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, from my point of view, that um, I think I didn't start out that way, but the fact that you know, I've been kind of, as I said, I, when I first began, it was more out of a sense of awe and then and tr- trying to reconnect the urban experience with the worlds that it takes to cr- have that urban experience. And then I think over, and then as the years progressed and as the problems started to c- become more apparent, because, you know, back in 1982, 83, I remember around 88, for the first time hearing that CO2 could create problems in the future with warming plants. But you, know, you think, well, what? that's way out there somewhere, and it's not, I'll not I'll have to worry about that. But I think it's kind of, the work is uh, event, you know, kind of met with the zeitgeist in that all of a sudden people are saying, wow, what we've done is now brought us to the threshold of real consequence. Uh, and it 's actually happening, as you said, and, you know I, I often cite the uh, uh, you know twenty twenty one in b c of how unusual that yeah, was yeah. and how scary that was, you know this heat dome, and then we 're hearing new terminologies like polar vortex, where the cold just comes and locks in, and you 've got minus fifteen or twenty in Toronto for two weeks or week and a half, and you know, and these are new terms that are all coming out as a result of very unusual. Um, you know, uh, thing. So I think that you know the that I, I've kind of become the reluctant activist in a way. You know that I that I think the work ha- is a stands as a kind of interesting compendium and testament to the scale of human endeavor, you know, out there in places that we don't normally get to see it. And now it's, some, it's somehow I think it 's meeting you know um, with what 's happening in our world and saying, "Well, you know how did we get here and then you look around you well yeah, we all understand our cities, but then we don 't fully understand what deforestation looks like and what mining looks like and what you know mass industry looks like uh, farming for instance so i 've gone and kind of chronicled all of that at the largest. Gael events, so I think in a way the work does stand now as a, as something that adds to the conversation about you know what it is that we've created, and 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 even when we did the movie and the exhibition Anthropocene, but in the movie at the end of it we all debated a long time what to say, but you know it is technology that brought us to this threshold, and 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 it's going to be some form of technology, which you're saying, that's going to actually move us out of this, mm-hmm. so but we have to really incentivize that transition and and I think like for instance if you talk to most you know economists scientists any climate scientists they're all saying a carbon tax is the fastest way you know and we've done that in this country uh, with a lot of you know uh, political capital that was spent to do that but I'm glad that we're on that path and now as you increase that carbon tax you're you are kind of shifting and making the alternative energies more viable than than the existing uh, energy.
0: How long does it take the Greenland ice cap to irreversibly, you know, that never comes back again, lose 100 tons of ice?
1: Anyone have a guess? Ed? couple seconds.
0: Anyone else? Five (laughs) Five seconds. See, none of you have any sense of scale. (laughs) The the Greenland ice cap loses 100 tons of ice in a hundredth of a second. So this is this is the scale at at which these things are are happening. Um, So, uh, but again, on the other hand, it also, uh, if you look into into into. uh, uh, get back to the solutions to the problem, which are, of course, also at scale, but we sometimes think that these are uh, insurmountable uh, problems getting the... We talk about now we need lithium for electrification or we need rare earth elements for this and that and the other. And everybody says, oh, this is terrible and we can't get them. And so, But you know which element, which mineral commodity, is the most investments are placed into finding gold one-half of all investments in mineral resources goes into looking for gold, which has hardly any practical use in this context at all. And then we talk and whine about how we, I don't think we can get all these things we need for the green transition, and it's difficult, and it's absolutely nonsense. Of course, it's because nobody looks for it, because it's so cheap that that we don't bother to, but it's not that we can't get it. We can just, if we decide that we go out and do it tomorrow, we can get everything we need for that. In half an hour, it's just uh, so. So it's also because I think that we we also and and it's back to the activism. I think it's much more to me uh, uh, appealing to be analytical and point out some of these things that actually shows the ways that things can be done rather than uh, kind of um, uh, what you say illustrate how impossible the whole thing looks. Mm. Uh,
1: just a question: When you said if we if we have the will to to reverse things and and change things and make changes who who is we? Is it is it us as a humankind? Is it politicians? Who are you referring to?
0: We, I think, all we starts with oneself, of course. But but it, clearly that is what we also. I think that's the, that's why I don't think that that the climate and its solutions are technological or scientific or whatever they are. They, they, they are sociological and cultural, and that's why I think that art, for instance, like you do, is is is, is really fundamentally important because it will it it does change people's perspective on things and it does change uh, the will to do something. And, and I think that, that, uh, that clearly, I mean, I think we have all seen the failure of politics at all scales uh, 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 repeatedly, but on the other hand, you can say that we also see the the strength of it because, by and large, most things do work. I got here from Copenhagen yesterday, and I am hopeful that I will get back again. And you know, and if uh, if something doesn't work, there's them. So, by and large, it actually does work. The societies are actually quite well functioning, uh, in for the most part there are some things we and and what you see with the climate is that it takes a generation basically for a new concept to be active so i've been uh, talking about this to school class or whatever for 30 years or something and and you know start getting frustrated because why does it, nothing ever happen and then suddenly that generation you taught in school now are out uh, requesting political change so I think it's also because we are, we are. I mean, we don't have too much time, but on the other hand, we have to accept that that these large-scale changes take time, and a generation have difficulty adjusting. A generation would rather let the next generation do the change.
1: But I, I just, out of curiosity, Ed, after exhibiting your work and for decades of, of doing this, what is one of the most profound reactions or things that somebody has said after seeing your work?
3: Well, oftentimes if I do a talk, I often have people come up afterwards and say, you know, I saw your movie or I saw your show or something, and, and I shifted my, you know, uh, practice and I'm, I went into environmental sciences, and, uh, you know, can I send you my dissertation? So in in many ways, I think those are the real moments of, uh, of recognizing that, you know, what you're doing is, because, uh, uh, you know, as you said earlier, if you get an IPCC report and you're looking at graphs and charts, there, there's no kind of, um, there's no visceral reaction to it. There's no emotional connection to it. It's an intellectual kind of processing and you can kind of, it can bring concern, but it doesn't have that gut feeling. It doesn't move you. And I think that's where, you know, both science and art have a role and in, in, in obviously like, You know, in universities, if I get a chance to talk at university, I say, look, you know, don't, you know, the the humanities is often seen as the drafty, dusty building and the engineering and science have the new shiny buildings with all, and I said, but if we don't tell our stories, if we can't get the narrative and if we let, like I often looked at like wind turbines. So, you know, when I saw wind turbines, you know, right from the very beginning, I see them as hope for the future. You know, Mm -hmm. to me, they represent hope, but somewhere whether it's the coal industry, the hydro plants, or whether it was the fossil fuel industry, but all of a sudden there was a lot of money being put in to grab the narrative and say, you know, these things kill birds, they they cause cancer, And, and, and worst of all, they make your real estate prices go down if you have one in your neighborhood. And all of a sudden they became these, you know, unwanted things. So, you know, and, and, and I actually spoke at Queen's and they were dealing with that because there was a big, you know, reaction to wind turbines on Wolf Island. And, and, and in, in that discussion with the university, I was saying, look, somebody stole the narrative and 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 if the narrative would have, and, and that's why you need the humanities department, you need people going out there and and fighting for the true story because that isn't, you know, Yes, yeah, some birds make a hit, but more birds are killed in to- glass towers in cities than there ever would be in a wind turbine. Um, they don't cause cancer, and they're not that noisy, and they're usually in farmer fields, and they usually augment that farmer's, you know, uh, income so that he doesn't have to leave the farm, and if the crops fail that year, at least I've got some money from those turbines there you know i think that there's you know again um there's a real importance that uh the stories that get told are are the ones that we need to tell to get people to understand that these are the kinds of changes we need to make if we want a a, a world for our children and their children
1: That was the perfect way to wrap it up nicely with a a bow, saying science and art both have a role to play when we talk about the environment, for sure. Thank you to everyone who came. Thank you.